imbued with as much public school spirit as the headmaster fondly hoped, we would all have been herded into the showers after gym or games, thus rendering this furtive charting of my fellows' incipient manhood redundant. One glance at their pelvic regions would have told all. Fortunately, though, whether we take a shower is optional. After gym there is never the time, and since I generally manage to sidestep games, the problem does not arise. But with, as it were, nothing to show throughout most of my adolescence, I live in fear of having to take my clothes off, managing somehow to avoid it during the whole of my school days and, more surprisingly, the entire two years I spend in the army. Occasionally I read of women who, in the 18th and 19th centuries, managed to serve as soldiers without their sex ever being discovered, it's no surprise to me, who, through school, national service and university, am never caught with my pants down. This elongated boyhood goes on, it seems to me, for years. Furtive and ridden with guilt, a less carefree boy it would be hard to find. Not that I have much to be guilty about. I never touch or am touched by a single one of my schoolfellows, though in a provincial grammar school this is not unusual though it's also that, for all the prurient surveillance which I keep on my classmates, what action there is generally manages to escape my notice. The best-looking boy in 4A is Ken Thompson, a greengrocer's son from Kirkstall. He's a sleepy kind of boy, who sits in the second row of the class by the window, his back to the wall, surveying the class with a forgiving smile. He's an athlete and a good swimmer, broad-shouldered with a narrow waist, and a body so perfect that in gym or the baths I find it hard to look at him. He is my age, but unlike me is long past puberty. His nickname is Tomo. I have no nickname, as there's never been any need for one. Another boy in the class is Briggs, who is poor, quite shabby, with a cheeky face, wild hair, and thin as a whippet. He is good at games too, and nippy on the wing, but with none of Tomo's slow Roman grace. We are getting changed after swimming in the school baths. This is always hectic and hurried, because Mr King, the PT master, invariably keeps us in the baths longer than he should, and afterwards rampages up and down the aisles, banging the doors of the cubicles and shouting at us to get a move on, as the bell has long since gone. I am changing in a cubicle opposite Thompson, who is sharing with Briggs, and fearful of the displeasure of Mr. King, who doesn't like me as I can only just swim and can't dive at all, I have dutifully hurried up, and so I am almost dressed when I look over to the opposite cubicle, where I can see that neither Thompson nor Briggs have even got their shirts on. "'Are you not ready yet?' I say smugly. "'I'm dressed!' The two boys, who seem to be busy with something below the level of the cubicle door, look up slightly startled, but also with a smile both of pity and contempt, and I can still feel the contempt fifty years later. They obviously know something I don't. At which point Mr King starts driving the class out, ready or not, and Thompson and Briggs hurry into their clothes and join the line-up outside, shirts hanging out and still half-dressed and so get bollocked by Mr. King, but only half-heartedly, as they're both good swimmers. 
It's only when we get back to the classroom that I realise that what they were looking at below the level of the door was each other, and what they were doing was tossing off, something which I've only just discovered how to do and feel far from easy about, and needless to say, mention to no one. Why I remember so vividly an incident that I don't altogether understand at the time, I'm not sure. True, it makes me feel out of it, but plenty of things do that. Chiefest, of course, that I'm still a boy when most of the class are virtually men. But what puzzles me and makes a lasting impression is the disparity between the boys. One flawlessly handsome, the other nice enough but skinny and a bit of a runt. Sex, it seemed, didn't require equality between the participants, or even parity of charm, just as in this case a cheerful and seemingly guiltless collaboration in its mischief. This wasn't a lesson I was ever going to take to heart, or at any rate not until it was almost too late. Looking at old photographs of my school class then, I see that we all look untroubled and even happy, but I'm filled with pity for myself and at how little I know, and how long it is going to take me to learn it. Thompson and Briggs know it already, and one component of that unforgotten look they give me across the wet passage is that they share a secret I have not yet discovered, namely that there is no shame in this mischief, only pleasure, and that not to know this, as plainly I do not, is to be a fool. There are plenty of boys in the class, Gedge, Stones, Maine, who, seeing it happening, would either have shouted encouragement or nipped across to have a look, even take part. But I am not that kind of boy. Or I am, but I can't let on. I think of their wet hair, the chlorine on the cold flesh, one body skinny and hard, the other smooth and classically proportioned. Both now in their seventies, and this incident so vivid for me still, by them buried or forgotten. Two years later, and nothing much has happened. I'm still a boy, my anatomical clock seemingly stopped. Were it not for the prospect of national service, I might be easier in my mind about being so slow to grow, but my looming nightmare is that I shall still be in my unfledged state when, aged eighteen, I go for my army medical, so my last years at school turn into a race between puberty and the call-up. I know of no way of hastening the process, but I try. Somewhere I have read that it is the thyroid gland that controls growth, and that one of its constituents is iodine. So I disinter our ancient bottle of iodine from the back of the bathroom cupboard. It is brown and ridged, and therefore poison, but I put it to my nose and deeply inhale, and even venture to lick the fatal cork. That I did not achieve maturity until I was well past sixteen, though it blights my boyhood, I now regard as a blessing, this protracted pregnancy of puberty constituting an education more enduring and exclusive than any I received courtesy of Leeds Modern School. It's an education in contraries, whereas in class and in anything to do with books I am always one of the leaders, in matters of the body I am among the last, the lessons in this parallel instruction written on the flesh, or not written, that is the trouble. 
It's in those years from 13 to 17 that the conviction takes hold that full membership having been denied me so long, I will never thereafter be a proper member of the human race, and will always to some extent be set apart. I am such a late starter, it seems to me there's hardly any point in joining, still less catching up. Thus it is that, though not ungregarious by nature, I have never since been a joiner, have avoided clubs and societies, and particularly those where women are not included, the absence of women, it seems to me, always bringing out the worst in men. Unfortunately, until well into my twenties, I regard sex as a club too, and one to which I have no hope of belonging. This begins at school, where sex seems an extension of organised games. The boys who are good at one are likely to be good at the other. So being excused games was also being excused life. There was always talk, of course, but skinny, fearful and prudish, I take no part in these discussions, partly because I haven't yet acquired the proper equipment, but also because I am religious and not that kind of boy, and so am thought to disapprove. I think I disapprove too, though I am careful to overhear what is being said, while not always appreciating what my classmates get up to. Innocent, yet prurient, I am an unattractive youth. In the plays that I have written, characters often recur who are, in some respect or other, maimed, a boy with a club foot, a girl who, as they used to say, is not all there, a young man with mysterious eczema, and another who inflicts on himself a tattoo. They are individuals who are, in various ways, stigmatised. Having suffered nothing that could properly be regarded as a stigma, though the need...